Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. It's Joshua Nicholson, Cybersecurity America. Welcome to the show. And today we have a really special treat. Today I have an interview with Bruce Schneier. He's an internationally renowned security technologist. He's called the Security Guru by The Economist. He's the author of over a couple dozen books, including his latest called The Hacker's Mind, as well as hundreds of articles, essays, and academic papers. His influential newsletter, Cryptogram, and his blog, Schneider on Security, are read by over 250,000 people. He has testified before Congress, is a frequent guest on television and radio, has served on several committees, and is a regularly quoted in the press. He's a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, a board member of the Electronics Frontier Foundation and Access Now, and is an advisory member of the Electronics Privacy Information Center and VerifiedVoting.org. He's also the Chief of Security Architecture at Interrupt Incorporated. Welcome to the show, Bruce. It's so glad to have you. You make me sound very, very busy. <laughs> it, it does. It does. How are you doing today? I'm Did doing I well. Anything? I know that you had... I've been reading your blogs for a very long time. I saw some of the last things you did on the cybersecurity regulations that came out and some of the articles related to it. So we've been following you for a long time. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, awesome. And we also have Aaron Beerlin here today. And Aaron is going to give us a threat intelligence report. Intelligence update for uh, today. Just a couple of notes to make. The variant of Lockbit went relatively undetected by a lot of your open source detection mechanisms. Like uploading the file to something like a virus total would show that a lot of companies were not detecting this. And so uh, what we're seeing is a qualitative leap in Lockbit. It's the best technology solution. But with that automation, uh, it's also something that's going to end up being listed out. It's something that can be easily enumerated over time. And then these operators are going to find methods to be able to get around that automation and that sandboxing with anti-analysis techniques. And so we're starting to see a lot of these implants that are able to avoid a lot of that automation that we rely upon in the cybersecurity field uh, to be able to reduce the size and the amount of people that we have, as well as try to remain as nimble as possible to shift for these different incidents. And so this was a really good example of some of the changes that occurred there and some of the uh, new TTPs that we're still researching and really trying to get a, a hold on it. But the big notable here was what what did appear to be a significant change in Lockbit's activity and the lack of the ability to have actually seen uh, to actually see this alert on the majority of security products over the last couple of months. I'll pause for any questions on that if there are any. No, that's interesting. So from a threat landscape perspective, I think you were seeing you were saying you were seeing some increase in different shifts in activity away from uh, targeted areas when Ukraine and more focused back towards the U.S., almost like they've gotten war weary. But have you seen a ransomware shift in, in how the threat actors are moving? 
Well, so one of the one of the puzzling things when we moved into 2023 is a lot of organizations wanted to do their trends from 2022. And we saw a lot of organizations talking about the reduction in ransomware operation. And when we discussed this on one of your earlier episodes, one of the notes that I wanted to make was that shift where a lot of your ransomware operators exist in the coalition of independent states. These are a lot of your former Soviet states. And a lot of them, a lot of these ransomware operators sometimes are in Russia or they lean towards Russian interests. And so my assumption on that and an assumption of other security researchers was that it wasn't that ransomware declined for any other reason than the focal point was on Ukraine in support of Russia. I think that what we're seeing now is that natural return to kind of baseline and potentially an increase of them going back to regular operations, because you can only support a nation state that's not really going to directly fund you for so long. Uh, it might be all right for a while to go after Ukrainian infrastructure, but these guys are here to make the money. They're criminals at the end of the day. And unless Russia is putting them on the payroll, they're going to have to shift back to targeting organizations. And so it's not that there's an increase, I would say. It looks like one because we are seeing more activity, but I don't think it's an increase in the sense that there's more ransomware operations for 2023 right now. I think we're returning to the average. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, Aaron. Any other enlightening details? Yeah, there's a there's another uh, article that's out, and there, a lot of people have been tracking a vulnerability within Microsoft Word that has one of the most fun things to ever talk about, which is rich text format. There's a vulnerability that Microsoft announced, which is CVE 2023-21716. They have listed this as a critical vulnerability. It's a 98 uh, as a CVSS score. And this specifically has a low attack complexity and it allows the threat actor to be able to conduct a, a remote code exploitation using a malcrafted RTF document. And this RTF document can actually start its payload if the document is merely previewed, not just open, but merely previewed. And now the big news point here is that an actual proof of concept has been released for that remote code execution. For those who don't know, our, our kind of normal tracking that we do is a vulnerability will come out. And that's a lot of your attack surface management, vulnerability management program that's going to look at that and engage their, you know, gauge their landscape with that. When CTI comes in is when you start seeing a proof of concept. Because once that proof of concept is released, that's when you start seeing that exploit development phase. Someone shows how this can be pulled off, and then you'll start seeing threat actors develop that exploit to then pull it off, crafting it into their tools. And that generally takes about 48 to 72 hours. So now that we're seeing an actual uh, proof of concept released on this, that puts this a little bit higher in that category of this is likely going to start being exploited. And we're going to start seeing threat actors crafting exploits and tailoring this into a lot of their frameworks to try to go after this vulnerability as a point of access. Now, it does affect Microsoft Word 2016 and older, so it's not all versions, but it is something that's, it is something that's being closely tracked. There are workarounds that are suggested by Microsoft. Primarily, it's removing the ability to preview an RTF document. But right now, I would have to double check because it's been a little bit this afternoon since I've checked up on it. I don't believe there's a current patch 
I think it's just a workaround at this time, but especially because it's Microsoft Word, a very popular vector of approach by threat actors, this is something to keep an eye on. I'm not ringing the alarm bells just yet, but it's something we're going to want to keep an eye on to start seeing this being developed and pushed out into the threat landscape. And if not mistaken, you could do RTF viewing in Outlook. So this would just be viewing an email as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it. It opens that chain a lot and it takes away a lot of that user interaction that a lot of that employee training that we've relied upon, that user interaction will then be gone. There goes your phishing simulations, right? (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, great. I appreciate your time, Aaron. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bruce, it's so, so great to hear. Well, what do you think about that, that briefing? Anything from the intelligence brief today? I always learn so much about it. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, I teach a cybersecurity class at Kennedy School, Harvard Kennedy School. And just today, we are talking about ransomware. And I saw the same numbers he did, that 2022 seems like there is less money exchanging hands. A lot of these numbers are fuzzy because we don't really see all of the data, but we're better at tracking uh, Bitcoin wallets and knowing where cryptocurrency is flowing in. So there are chain analysis, other companies doing more of this uh, this type of analysis. We've got to see how much money is flowing in to, uh, to ransomware. Mm-hmm. Now, my take is a little different. You know, we are seeing a lot more coordinated takedowns. And uh, US, FBI, other countries together are disrupting the infrastructure of these ransomware gangs. And that is having a real effect. I don't think it is just that they were busy engaging in patriotic hacking for the government of Russia. There actually is some disruption here. So we'll see, right? This goes in waves. It is definitely an arms race up and down. So whether this continues, it's either a short-term blip or a long-term trend, we don't know yet. It is in the interest of all these companies to exaggerate the threat, of course. So, you know, the fact that they're saying the threats lessen, I think is something important. I'm also watching that that word bug. The important thing about it is that it only affects older versions of Windows or Word. It's not, if you're current, you don't have to worry about it. So that's really important because most of us are current. Uh, it is really critical in the fact that you don't have to even open the file. Right? As you pointed out, you get previews in Outlook. So you know, previewing is something we often do. Just It just happens automatically. Right. So think of it like a zero-click vulnerability on your phone. It's mm-hmm. potentially very, very dangerous. And right, there is no patch yet. But you know, if you're using that older system, you're likely not going to install patches anyway. If you were patching, you would be upgrading. So it's interesting to watch who this affects. We are we do see a lot of catastrophic effects on vulnerabilities on only older systems. So it is this is not a new thing. Uh, one thing you didn't mention that I'm following, and this is this is actually brand new. There's a new vulnerability in the the boot process in the Windows boot process. Really, it affects uh, UEFI. I forget what that stands for but it's basically the system that boots up your machine. So this is malware that lives in the boot and will survive rebooting, right? You, you take Windows out and, re, and reboot it and, and the vulnerability is back because it's in the boot process. It's unpatchable and that's particularly dangerous. Uh, yeah. It doesn't survive reinstalling Windows. We weren't sure about that. And we haven't yet seen it in the wild and I'm trying to get it's called Black Lotus, so everything gets a cool name these days. Right. I can't figure out if the code is out there. 
I think it's not, but I haven't fully researched that. That's something else I'm watching. It's very similar. I was a consulting on site and we had these laptops that came in and we would image them, yet we would see still see like a C2 connection outbound. And we found out there were memory chips actually loaded on the motherboards. And so it was essentially rootkitted from from the manufacturer. And even when we re-imaged it, we couldn't get rid of it. It would still so the NSA is a master at this. You start looking at the Snowden documents. This is 10 years ago now. I mean, just remember, these these are decade-old documents. They spent a lot of effort in vulnerabilities and exploits that would survive rebooting, reinstalling. Like they embed themselves in the control code in your hard drive. They wouldn't even be in part of the OS. So those techniques, which were very cutting edge 10 years ago, are like everything else going down the food chain. So, you know, seeing some of these things in... Uh, in criminal malware is is not surprising, but it does it does affect sort of how these things work. Yeah, that's the game. Yeah, I think uh, device security, IoT security. How do you know your Wi-Fi is secure when you get bought that router and it came from? China? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> Especially the regular person doesn't. And, and if you think about IoT and routers, that's pushing down into you know cheap devices. So the amount of expertise and development that goes into making your phone secure or your laptop secure does not go into making your router or your thermostat, your refrigerator, your drone, your toy, your IoT, anything mm-hmm. secure. Right? They just, they just, they're just designed offshore by third parties, much lower profit margin. So, right, so they, they're more vulnerable. And also they're unpatchable. I mean, the way you patch your home router is to throw it away and buy a new one. Yeah, because it's not like that. You can look and say, "Okay, that's secure shell version library such and such that they use." Yeah, it's really hard to do. Source libraries that how would you ever tell? In many cases, what's behind the scene, and like just sit there and rip it apart. You know, there are companies starting to do that. I've seen a couple of startups that are doing adversarial uh, software builds and materials. Like infinite. And, and a, so an S bomb is is tell me what libraries you're using in your code, so I know like where my vulnerabilities are. Companies hate this. They don't want to do it. Any attempt at the U.S. government to mandate that's kind of nuke from orbit. But there are now companies that are doing that adversarially. Like they know what the code looks like. They can go into someone's code and figure out what libraries they're using. So that is a step in the right direction. I like that. But they're very difficult there, especially these cheap IoT devices and things oh, that they would ever do it. They they snap different libraries. So when you had a vulnerability in one, it's it's all across the board. You everything that used that library. And then like you were talking about supply chain management and some of your articles, I think supply chain management is a critical. We get impacted during the pandemic, our ability yeah. to deliver just desktops to new employees when they onboarded. We couldn't even do that in some cases. So it became a really, really big challenge. Do you think it's a step forward? On what got passed recently, I saw your article I read on the cybersecurity standards that were passed by the federal government. What are kind of your thoughts in, on that that just came Are you me? thinking of uh, Biden's cybersecurity strategy of last week? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's not really passed by the federal government. This is an executive strategy document. I mean, there's a lot of good things in it. I'm certainly a big fan of liabilities, software manufacturers. I think that is a way to change the economic incentives. I mean, right now the incentive is to have insecure devices and services because they're cheaper and they sell better. Mm-hmm. But if we raise the cost of insecurity by making you liable for damages, you will spend more money on security. So I'm a big fan of that. 
I like talk about infrastructure. I mean, right now, most critical infrastructure in the United States is in private hands. And again, economics, it's not in their economic best interest to secure it at a nation level standard. So the government has to step in and provide that additional level of security. I think that's the right way to think about that. And the third thing is, again, economics. The document talks about the government using its buying power. And I think it's really important that the federal government, as a major purchaser of this stuff, says as part of their contract, you have to be at least this secure. We're not going to buy you. Yeah. Companies will meet that level of security, but they're not going to meet it just with the federal government. They'll push it out in all their, their services. And so we all benefit. So I very much like the, the ways that the Biden administration is thinking about this as an economic problem. But the problem is not tech. The problem is economic incentives. Mm-hmm. And that is 100% the right way to think about it. That is what I teach in my class. I mean, look for the incentives. Look for the structure. And if you can make that work, the tech will figure it out. Mm-hmm. Your job as policymakers is not to figure out what tech is good but just design the incentives so that the system figures it out. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. I saw economic decisions too, doing these big mergers and acquisitions. And you'd see one company say, I'm going to merge, I'm going to acquire them, but I'm going to use all their old equipment. I'm going to maintain it as long as I can. I'm not going to replace it with a base standard. And in cybersecurity, when we have so many different flavors and so many different technologies, very hard to monitor it, manage it, patch it, perform any kind of um, due diligence on it. And they sacrificed a few dollars, penny wise, pound foolish here. It's like, I'm going to save some money by replacing these these machines with, with new systems. I'm going to maintain them for a little time period, but they have no idea what it causes us five, six years later with that infrastructure. Yeah, but, but, you know, but that's not the way our system works. Our system works on what are your quarterly returns? Mm. Our system works on near-term savings, <clears throat> even the expense of long-term expense. right? And, and I mean, that's not good for society, but that is the way we built the incentive structure. You want to fix that, you need to change change capitalism, the way capitalism works today. Mm-hmm. Because today, it works for near term. So we think about this as technical debt. Right? So we are going to you know, solve for this quarter by sort of piling technical debt onto the future. Someday, they'll replace it all. And someday, we'll worry about that Windows 20, what is it, Office 2016, vulnerable to that- RTF, yeah. Right, that RTF, rich text format vulnerability. Right, not my problem. That'll be someone else's problem, yeah. and you know that is a common way to think. It is. It is not good, but it's the way we've set up our systems. And so, don't you can't blame anybody for doing that. And that's think, the way the system is set up. And just thinking of incentives here, I mean, the other thing that's been breaking here is just Chat GPT and how that affects society. I tell you, in my podcast when I put the descriptions together and the titles, I ran it through Chat GPT. I, I took the output. Oh yeah, right. And they probably do a pretty good job. I did a bit, not a bad job. What I did is uh, the company and workforce asked, can you get a transcript together? So I used Descript, was able to get an accurate transcript, imported that in the chat GPT and said, write me a blog. Here's my bio, my background and so forth. And it wrote me a 300 word blog. Uh, now, granted, two or three words we had to change, but I just saw how it's a bill. You know you're going to get fired in a week if you keep doing this. So it's like they're going to replace you with chat GPT. All it takes is uh, someone that can put a fake image up and make it, you know, talk in your voice. This isn't hard. It may be that way. You may have one day where you have an AI bot that's doing first level interviews. It may I'm have- totally an AI bot responding to you, by the way. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Bruce Schneier is actually busy. There you go. There you go. Oh, you seem realistic. Real, real. I, tech is good these days. 
Now, I saw your other episode, and this is one thing I, I struggle with because I have uh, several children, but I read your article on why we shouldn't ban TikTok and then just a foreign policy article related to it. I guess you could take a few minutes, kind of educate us on that area here and some something that's close to my heart anyway. You know, so really the article said that less about should and more that it won't work, that trying to do it will cause a lot of damage and will fail. And there's several things we can do. So we can say government employees can't have TikTok on their government phones. You know, and, and a bunch of governments around the world are doing that. That's easy to do. Mm. But to say that you know, American citizens can't have it on their phones, we cannot make that work. Like We just don't have the kind of censorship and surveillance network on our internet like China does. And we're not going to build it. All right. So it's just, it just can't do it. Something in the middle, which we might see, is a ban on financial interactions with uh, ByteDance, the company that owns TikTok, right? So you can imagine the U.S. government saying, we're going we're gonna to designate ByteDance as a terrorist organization, and it is illegal for you to engage in financial transactions. What that means, Americans, American companies can't advertise on TikTok. It means that American uh Hosting sites can't host TikTok. Mm-hmm. It means that Apple and Google can't have the TikTok app in their stores. Right? You know that would do a bunch of damage to the company. But if you want, if you're a kid and you want TikTok, you're getting it. Right? You know, I can't stop you from going to the website. Yeah. I can't stop you from uploading stuff. I mean, just like we can't stop, uh, you know, offshore gambling on the internet. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna be able to stop TikTok. So really, what I say in the article is that. You know, trying is a fool's errand. And, you know, you need to you, you know, use diplomatic channels with China like we deal with anything else we might want to ban, like pajamas that catch on fire or baby food that isn't healthy. That, that we have these ways to deal with foreign imports and to use those channels instead. And also to say is, look, we built an Internet for surveillance. Facebook, Google, all these companies make money spying on you. That's their business model. And once you've done that, you really can't pick and choose who spies. Because hmm. the internet is built for spying. You really want to fix the problem, fix the spying problem. And yeah, yeah it's going to hurt American companies. It's going to hurt the NSA, but it'll be a safer, more secure internet. Yeah, I heard a, a couple of individuals. I was trying to understand the threat. Is the threat really the TikTok app on your phone, its surveillance capabilities, or is it the ability to push content towards? You know, so, so, and it's weird because this is very much a moral panic. So it's hard to figure out what it is people are scared of. TikTok China, that's what they're scared of. But if you pick at it, I think the fear is that because TikTok is so good at understanding your emotions, feeding them back to you and potentially manipulating them, that this becomes a tool of the state. That the government could use this to gauge and then manipulate popular opinion. Now, this is probably not true. And this sounds a lot like Cambridge Analytica, which was totally bogus. But, you know, it's that kind of moral panic. So it's Cambridge Analytica, but in the hands of a government that we don't trust that is actually, you know, adversary on the world stage. So it is kind of ill-formed what the actual risk is, but it's in that area. Right? No, so like we're kind of fine with Facebook and anybody who pays Facebook money doing this, which could also be the Russian government, 
but we don't like the fact that a Chinese-owned company can do this. So it really doesn't pass scrutiny when you think about it. I think a lot of it is we just are mad at China right now. Yeah, I, I guess it was interesting because I came out of my house and saw the Chinese balloon go over my house. So Did I you really? Over the neighborhood here in Charlotte. Wow. We had everybody in the, we have a little neighborhood Facebook group. And so they're posting pictures from their front porch. And I was on a conference call, but I took it remotely and walked outside. But uh, yeah, Oprah, super weird story, right? Yeah. I and mean, it, what, is, what is it like? Like 1912, we have balloons were flying over each other. And it, it does seem like we have a domain vulnerability where we couldn't see it at a certain level. And I think that balloon was at 60,000 feet, but it was probably very effective at 90 or 95,000 feet. There's not and it's also cloud colored, so it's harder to see. It has a low uh, radar footprint. I did think it was pretty gutsy, especially something that's the size of three buses to float in a balloon over the United States, right? And not, it, is. Uh, it is. I mean, it would not be what I would have chosen to do. It would not. Yeah. But it turns out this is like not unusual. Like there were a bunch of balloons over the past few years. It's, this is the one that made the news. Yeah. So this balloon, this balloon thing is an actual thing. Yes, I, I was surprised as well. And I have uh, some former NSA guys that work for me, and they do a lot of the threat intelligence. And, and I was like, okay, tell me, what what is really the advantages, really, of the balloon? All right, so what'd you learn? Well, he says, well, the balloon, you can collect low-level RF signatures that get blocked by the ionosphere. So the satellite system is not going to be able to pick ah, So what kind of signals are valuable there? So you can have RF signals that are coming off of cell towers. You can have VHF, UHF, UHF radio between different aircraft. You have VHF on the ground. Security around bases use different radio systems. HF, high frequency in the Marine Corps. So the idea this is flying over nuclear silos was like possibly a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. So it signals intelligence. You're grabbing all that stuff. Satellite is only geospatial and only for a time period, and then it flies over, and the ionosphere blocks any signals collection. So, so one of the things China said is, like, you U.S. Americans, you're flying balloons over us, too. Probably so. Do we have any evidence of that? I mean, or, I mean, it's something you'd certainly say what you know, on the world stage. Like, you do it to stop getting mad at us. Right. Do we think that's true? I think they've been using balloons since 1910, right? So I, think, I know, but I think they stopped when they invented aircraft because they're better. Well, and you shot shoot down a pilot, and then he's behind enemy lines. So it's the first drone, so to speak. And then the jet is only up there for, it's going 400, 500 miles. Right, right? so this is the slower. Interesting. Sits yeah, and who knew? And can loiter. So it was really interesting. I think you could do a lot of data collection before downing it into the uh, in, into the water, and then you want to be able to collect it from there and and view it. But I think they also had the U two uh, spy satellite U two spy plane was up there taking pictures of it. So I think it was it was a in very interesting time, as well as some of the other things we've gone through, like solar winds and and some of these celebrity vulnerabilities. Log four J. We had a uh, that was just a, a nightmare for us, especially when you're dealing with pharmaceutical companies. The last two years been heavily involved in cyber operations for pharma companies right during the pandemic. And it was amazing to see the disruption to the supply chain, the attacks that were occurring, the attempt at intellectual property, and we had to defend it all remotely. And, and so it was just a really singing, exciting times. Th this last year, what have you seen and you've learned from kind of the trends that make you think, hey, I think this is going to happen in the future. I mean, we're that's interesting. I think a lot of it's, uh, I mean, Log4j is a good example of a supply chain vulnerability. It, it, here it is, a library. It's in everything. I think SolarWinds was also an example of that. And, and it made much worse by the economics. So I spent a lot of time talking about economics. 
So uh, Solar Winds is a private equity-owned company owned by uh, Tama Brava, a Brazilian billionaire as a private equity firm, owns Solar Winds. And like most private equity, they have a very interesting business model. They find companies that are sticky, right? That have customers that are sticky, that their customers are unlikely to leave. Right. They buy the company and then make the product as sucky as possible without losing customers too quickly, right? Pull money out of it right. and leave the rotting hulk to die. That's, you know, it's a horrible business model. This is private equity. And so companies like SolarWinds deliberately underspend on security. I mean, they, what they did is they pushed risk onto their customers without telling them because it was more profitable near term. So here you have SolarWinds as a company, doesn't have good security in their own network. Right? The Russian government, the military can break into the company, hack their update server, stick malware into an update, which automatically gets pushed onto their, their all their customers. You're a SolarWinds customer. Of course, you install a security update. That's what we've, that's what we've been teaching you for decades. And now 14,000 networks are open to the Russian government. Pretty impressive operation, right? Made possible by this business model of underspending on security and reliability and sort of other things that are not immediately visible to the customer. Yeah, I always, so it, whoever that- That's what continues. I said, whoever that GRU agent or on the Russian side that was successful for solar winds, whoever was got a medal for that. I hope he got a medal because that was a pretty impressive operation. And it was very effective. I mean, right now, I think a lot about AI. I mean, everyone is, but I'm thinking about AI in vulnerability finding. Now, I don't know if you remember 2016 at uh, we had, uh, oh, I'm blanking on what it was called. We had a capture the flag contest. For AI, you know, to capture the flag happens at hackers cons, simulated network and teams hack each other to defend their own. Right. So DARPA ran one of these AIs. About 100 teams competed. There were like nine finalists at DEF CON 2016. For like in 10 hours, they hacked each other on this network. An AI named Mayhem got a Carnegie Mellon and it won. It's now a commercial product. And that kind of idea of AIs doing hacking finding vulnerabilities, executing them is new. DARPA never re repeated that, uh, that AI contest in the US. China has every year. Wow. It's called Robot Hacking Games. It is now run by the Chinese military. And we don't see a lot of what's coming out of that, but I'm sure it's interesting. I'm sure. And this notion of AI being a hacker, I think is something to watch. Because it now means a lot of these things are going to happen a lot faster. Hmm. And we need AI defending. And I would like to see the U.S. sort of reinstitute that contest. I think it's valuable. And it is, you know, and you know how DARPA works. There was some person there who spearheaded this. They left. No one took it over. So it kind of languished. That's, that's the way DARPA is run. Well, I think that's interesting. I think, yeah, that's a good concept. I think that is... Um... I would like to see what comes out of that as well for, I did those capture the flags and I think you're going to have this AI where you have good AI versus bad AI to simplify it. Or good AI versus good AI. Cause I mean, good and bad is moral. Good and bad is not a technical term. It's your intent to your organization, right? If it's a negative. Yeah, but you know, this is the same AI run by, you know, the government you like is good and run by the government you don't like is bad. Yeah. I think good and bad are moral overlays on technical capabilities. Okay. I don't think you can, 
don't think you'd classify at the tech level that way. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's a good way to look at it. I mean, I think there'd be probably services in the future where you could see where your defensive training for AI just to prevent fraud and things that it may be in control of. So they're going to be like a boot camp or some kind of training you'd have to go through defense in depth for AI. However, how do you prevent your AI from getting bullied? You know, so, something to that effect, right? I think that's right. You know, and, and it's already super weird out there. It's only going to get weirder. All right. Well, and, and Bruce, I definitely want to have time. I want to talk about your new book. I'm I'm a big reader. I love different books and, and stuff, especially when it comes to the person inside and professional development and so forth. But you have a book called A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. And so I just want to give you some time if you want to talk to us about this, this new book that's coming up and what can we expect? All right. So it's out. I mean, here's an actual physical copy of the book. It's out. Um, I think the cover is fantastic. I'm really happy with the cover. And what I'm doing here is I'm taking the metaphors of hacking and applying them to non-computer systems, particularly to social, economic, and political systems. So I'll give a basic example, the tax code. It's not computer code, but it's a series of algorithms. You you put in the money you made and, and out comes the money you owe. It's mathematical formulas and a whole lot of rules of how to use them. And that code has vulnerabilities. We call them tax loopholes. It has exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And it has black hat hackers. We call them accountants. We call them attorneys. And and that metaphor translates really well. Mm -hmm. So in my formulation, a hack is something the system permits but is unintended and unanticipated by its designers. So a tax loophole is a mistake. It's a mistake in the code. It's allowed, right? You can do it just like in Windows, you can do the thing that, that that Windows vulnerability, that Word vulnerability, it's possible to do it. The code permits it, but we don't want it to happen. So tax loopholes are like that. And then other things, other, uh, so I spend a lot of time in my book talking about these hacks of sports, right? Curving your hockey stick was a hack. Originally, the forward pass in football was a hack. It wasn't in the rules. But also things like gerrymandering Mm. and the filibuster and different ways companies hack financial regulations or the way Uber hacks transportation regulations. So thinking about these things as hacks, Mm. as way these rules are subverted. And it is really me trying to take this whole language we have and also these defenses. Like we know what to do about computer hacks mm-hmm. and trying to apply them to these broader social, political, economic systems. Uh, it was actually fun to write. I, mean, I, I have lots of great examples from all over society. I mean, I have hacks against religion. I mean, the ways that Catholics hacked fish on Friday or mm-hmm. Jews hacked the rules of the Sabbath or uh, the way indulgences were hacks against uh, church prohibitions on selling and the ways people hacked usury laws because you needed to lend things in in society, but the church didn't allow it, but you had to do it. So how do you hack it? So lots of, lots of things were all over the, uh, all over the world. Really it's about thinking and rethinking these ways people subvert systems to their own advantage. So that's the book and like in a nutshell. And that's fast. Super fun to write. It was my pandemic book. I really had a good time writing. 
And that's a fascinating concept too. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I was I was nine years old. I was not allowed to ride my bike across the street, but I was able to cross the street. So like, I can't ride in the street, but I could cross the street. So I thought I would just go at an angle, and that would allow me to go for a hundred yards without actually. Uh, See? Totally a hack. And and kids are natural hackers. Yeah. The notion. You see that on the internet with all these prohibitions against kid apps having chat. Yeah. It's often very stylized, words are prohibited. Kids get around all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, because you- right, kids are natural hackers. And this thinking out of the box is what kids do. I like this. You, I like hacking the rules about crossing the street with your bike. Nicely yeah. done. Well, I had the advantage here is that I uh, also worked for, for CoFence for a long time. So I did international. I was in the international road. And this so- is as a kid or later? No, later. This is as okay. And so I've been to a lot of different countries. And so I was in Saudi Arabia and I, I was noticing we went from Saudi Arabia. We can't drink alcohol, but you could go to Bahrain and, and right. drink alcohol. Right. And so the cab driver says, it goes, looks to the left there. You see all those rocks and they were all stained with some like orange stain or something. I said, yeah, all those stained rocks. Is that like seagulls or something? He says, no, that's that's people. They walk into Bahrain, they get drunk and then they throw up over the bridge. They gag themselves and throw up on the bridge before they go back into Saudi Arabia because they can't have alcohol in their system. Wow. That's pretty interesting. So I also see where I fly from Saudi back into Dubai and you have the women with the burqas on and they have the full burqas and you you can't see where their eyes. And by the time they landed in Dubai, it was high heels and miniskirts. And what you you find out is that uh, when you're in a burqa'd society, they don't know who you are back home. They don't see your face. Only your mom, your dad, your sister know what you look like. So they can go and take their face mask off in Dubai and nobody knows who they are because because of their situation. So oh, that's interesting. I had that. And then I go to Sweden and I'm, I'm drinking a beer. It's like really expensive. And I, t- I would complain to the bartender. I said, man, that's this beer is expensive. It's like 20 euro for this beer. Yeah, high alcohol tax in the Nordics. Oh, absolutely. He says you got to so people don't commit suicide. But he says, but that's that's tourist beer. We drink local beer. I said, oh, OK, where's the where's the local beer? at?" he goes, oh, at the ferry. I said, what's the ferry? I thought there was an actual bar called the ferry. He goes, no, go down to the ferry. And they had a car ferry where people pull their cars on it and you can go sit inside it. He says it goes from here to Helsinki, Finland, and it goes back and forth. When it goes into international waters, the price drops. There's no taxes. It's $2 a beer. So nobody goes to go to Finland. They go to drink and then they come back. So they're just... In the middle of the, total hack. That's awesome. It's a total hack. So these were, these were great examples for the book. <laughs> the guy. Yeah. Think about it, right? It, it, right? The intent of the rule is this, but it's being subverted for this other purpose. That is totally a hack. I like the beer drinking hack. And that is human nature. I've seen that. Hundred percent human nature. Nature. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so- one of the points I make in the book is that you know the the, the beer hack is, is a counterexample. But most of these hacks are done by the rich and powerful. Hmm. They're mostly United States, you know, Peter Thiel, you know, saving billions of dollars in, in, in tax because he hacked the Roth IRA. You know, they're, they're mostly the rich and powerful. They, they come out of Goldman Sachs. They're done for the rich. They're not, not done for us. It's the exceptions where it's, it's the low power hacking from below. Generally, it's hacking down. It's a way to increase power. The, power, the powerful have the biggest impact on us. But I've seen... The biggest impact, and they're also most likely to make sure their hacks are declared legal. Right? The carried interest tax loophole, you know, is definitely a loophole. A hack shouldn't be there. Well, we've been spending 20 years trying to close it and we're unable to. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely. And you ask yourself, it's part of human nature. How do, from a society perspective, how do you prevent hacks like this, so to speak? I mean, you know, it is human nature. I mean, the way the way you deal with hacks, you have a governing system above the hack. Hmm. Right? So Microsoft can handle hacks. They get hacked. They patch, right? They, they, they change the rules. So the hack is no longer allowed. Mm-hmm. If that could happen in government, that's good, right? You know, if a court system, a regulatory body can, can say this hack, I mean, I get that it's like, it follows the letter of the law, but it's obviously not the intent. You're not supposed to do it. Roth IRAs were designed for middle-class Americans. They're not designed for you, billionaire. You know, give us your back taxes. Right. So you can do that. That is hard to do. But it really requires having a governing body that can make a decision. So uh, the hockey stick, right? So we know the name of the hacker that first curved this hockey stick. Changed the game dramatically. The puck flies faster, it gets air. It's more exciting, way more dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the governing body of the NHL has to decide, do we want to do this or not? And they, over the course of the following years, changed the rules like four times try to balance a more exciting game with a more dangerous game. Mm. Dunking in basketball was originally a hack. Mm. Right? The rules just, you know, didn't say anything. And it was originally all against the rules. Isn't all violation a hack, actually? Uh, you, we're talking over each other, so you gotta, I, I can't hear you. Everybody. Isn't all innovation in one way a hack when you're innovating? You know, it's not all innovation, but it, there's some innovation. And, and a lot of hacks are innovative. You know, we could argue that what Uber is doing to city taxi laws is innovating uh, like a decade, maybe century old, you know, moribund regulatory structure. And it's a good thing. And hacks aren't necessarily bad. In the computer field, they're almost always bad. Out in the real world, they are also innovations. And you get to decide, right? Like, you know, dunking in basketball makes the game more exciting. We're going to allow it. Mm-hmm. 1970s, a team shows up on the Formula One racetrack with a six-wheeled car. Mm. And everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And they pull out the rule book and say, show me. And it turns out that the rules are silent on the number of wheels a car can have because who imagined it would have not have four wheels? Right. But the, the, the body, and I forget their name, they're French, that controls Formula One racing, modified their rules and you can now no longer have a car with more than or less than, in case you're getting any ideas, four wheels. Right? So, right, the body fixed the rule book. You see that in casino hacks all the time, right? The rules change. But you're not allowed to count cards. You're not allowed to bring a computer and uh, you know play a roulette. Because those hacks were successful, and whoever's in charge of the system fights back. Mileage runs used to be a hack. Now the airlines have basically made them no longer a hack. They're no longer profitable. Yeah, it was like that Olympic sprinter that had blades for his feet. You know, yeah. he had a tragic accident and lost his feet, and then they put blades on it, and then you have to decide, is that actual legal? Yeah. Or is it part of a there's, a, there's a pole vaulter that redefined pole vaulting. He's trying to figure out that you should go over the, the pole backwards instead of forwards. Mm. We know his name. right? He hacked that sport. There's someone on uh, the backstroke who... Uh, would go underwater for most of the pool and lots of examples in sports. Hmm. 
You know, we have an example in the military, too. And, and when you go down the obstacle course and everybody would go down backwards and, and pull themselves hand over hand until one brave guy just jumped on the road head first and started going, which no one would have thought to do that because you think you would just bust your head on the ground. And he actually beat the record bad by doing that. And everybody went because right, he changed the read. He did something that, that no one else thought of. Oh, I want to get a video of that. It's a good hack. Yeah, that, that, that was a couple. And I think you learned that in kind of military training because you try to problem solve. Everything's about how do I get ammo cans over the the bank over here in this river? And nine times out of 10, you're just trying to solve basic logistical problems as you move forward. So and I think that's I think the Russian army is learning the hard way right now. Yeah. Yeah. Even even the Marine Corps, my nephew just joined the Marine Corps and they do cybersecurity testing. And when you go in, there's a there's a whole testing now as part of the the vocational aptitude test I thought was really exciting. It started trying to teach them how to have that that mentality. What what I loved about cybersecurity is one, when I, I was coming through a night school and I was getting my degree in computer programming, computer information systems, minor telecommunications from Tulane University. And I was doing C, C++. And one of the things that fascinated me actually was your book. And Which one? Uh, that, that was on encryption algorithms and- It was applied cryptography. Protocols, algorithms, source yeah. code and C. Uh, that that was phenomenal because that opened up the world to me. I didn't because I always wanted to go into cyber, but there was there was very there was no programs when I was there. It was IT, so it was programming, and but I was already a cybersecurity engineer doing Cisco stuff, and so I thought that was a great Bridger book that showed me. Right, that, and that book came out in 1994. You probably read the red edition, which was 1996. Yeah, so it's pretty old now. Yeah. I am pretty old now, Bruce. Yeah, it's the way it goes. We all are. Well, not all of us. Well, the, us old people are. I was lucky. I got into this field 24 years ago. And when I first started, it was right out of the Marine Corps. And we had DOS 622. And so there was no UI. Uh, Windows uh-huh. 1 came out. And that was, that was awesome. Check this out. You actually have a mouse that you could move over. And then Windows 95 was like groundbreaking. Nobody ever you know, Kids these days don't want to hear these stories. So you should not do this. <laughs> I know where you came from now, because now I, I could tell you doing uh, cybersecurity operations. One of the things I've noticed the shift in just the last couple of years is that I used to build the SIM systems and these hunt platforms using local hardware. And I would, I would buy it depreciated over three, four years. I'd have 10, 15 terabyte worth of drive space. I want to dump some logs. It was up to me how much I would fill it up, what I can adjust. And now I go to cloud and I do a Splunk cloud or one of these other cl- and all of a sudden, I have the bean counters telling me you need to get the AWS bill lower. What do you can you stop logging? Which wow. I've never had that before. I've never had the bean counters telling us you got to do something about this AWS cost. Wow. Um, and so it's put security in a really bad light. I actually had to do some risk in business management to say what what Windows logs it's okay for me not to take, and just to get under in some cases some of these events per second, or because of of the way they price themselves. And I, I hear just the the way SIM is now, it's just, it eats up so much cost from a cloud perspective. But what are you seeing? Is that shift to cloud really as beneficial or is it problematic in other areas? What are your thoughts? You know, it, it's beneficial for for the, the economic reasons. So, I mean, the cloud is cheaper and, and you know, in general, outsourcing infrastructure makes sense. Yeah. And so, so, so us security people don't get a say in this. We don't get a vote. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. It has security, its own security challenges, but we're seeing a whole lot of cloud security products and services coming out. So, you know, we're working on it, but, you know, it's happening for reasons that are way bigger than us, that the cost of infrastructure is so much cheaper in in the cloud. 
And, and that's just that's just a powerful motivator that's not going to change. But that also takes the expense from a capital into it, makes it into an expense item from a capital. So and and, and any companies like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what is it? What is a cybersecurity person who is mid-level and they're wanting to advance your career? You have so much background and experience. You're very well read. Where would you say that someone who has been, you know, five, 10 years of experience, they have some good technical background, but but really the upper ranks really require a an ability to communicate from a business perspective, be able to communicate with multiple stakeholders and be able to show a vision and a strategy that has analogies towards it and is not this highly complicated engineering speak that we use when we first went, when came up through the. hundred percent. That's a good way to describe it. So what, what do you think is best for someone to address those, those issues in their life? I mean, God, you have to learn it. And I don't, I don't know how, but you have to learn it. You have to learn how to speak to normal people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, it, it's its own skill. It's a separate skill than tech, a tech skill. Mm-hmm. Like not being weird at parties. Like being able to talk about stuff with with like normal people words is it, and can be hard, and not everyone is up for it. Not everybody wants to do that. Yeah, there's a lot of people who just want to do the tech, and there's a lot. I mean, luckily, there's a lot of of demand out there for people with 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 these skills. Mm. And and so when you look at specializing, just pick whatever excites you. It's all valuable. It's all needed, and it's all employable. So don't worry about how to optimize, you know, what you should do. Do the do the thing that that, you know, gets you up in the morning. Well, and I think one of the things I tell people is if it's uncomfortable for you, that may be something you ought to focus on. Like if it's uncomfortable talking in front of people, maybe that's what you should work on development. Or you should decide you don't want to do it. I mean, those are your two options, right? You either work on it or you pick a job. You don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not always convinced you have to face your fears. Sometimes you can say, those are my fears. They're going to stay over there. I'm happy with that. No, absolutely. And, and I think there's a lot of different um, different areas that people just need some guidance and some focus and some mentor. Sure. You know, what does it mean for me? How do I get into this field? And I noticed that earlier, the newer generations when I'm coming up, at least when I was coming up, I would work for a company for about two years before I'm asking for a raise or, or what's my uh, path for forward and that kind of stuff. Because I, I wanted to prove myself and every, you get about that first two years, year or two. But I see now that the recent generations, it's like six months are asking, hey, so when do I get promoted and what's my next raise? It's this instant gratification that they look for. And almost so like their LinkedIn title can just keep going up. And- I'm not sure it's gratification. I mean, you know, workers have been taken advantage of for a long time. I don't mind workers pushing back and saying, you know, hey, you're getting a lot of value from me. You know, I need to be compensated mm-hmm. because, you know, it's not just, hey, give me some more money. It's there are these other offers out there that I am qualified for that pay more. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's what the market bears, right? I mean, right? These companies like it when they get to use bargaining power to make stuff cheaper, but they hate it when their employers do it. And eh, just too freaking bad. I, I have no sympathy. <laughs> that's a good point. I love that. I, I like that candor too as well. Um, so like if we talked about this a little bit earlier, but quantum computing, I'm telling is being told is like the killer of encryption. And it's going to impact. Yeah, totally not. Is that overblown? Totally, it's totally overblown. So I, I, rather than sort of explain it all here, I did an essay on this, and the title is Cryptography After the Aliens Land. You can go Google it. You can find it. You know, it, it does break some things. It doesn't break other things. We're working on post-quantum encryption standards. The math was ahead of the physics. I don't think there's a lot to worry about here. It makes things different. It doesn't make things terrible. 
That's the short answer. And wh where would you see the first technology of quantum coming into the data center anyway? That oh, you know, we always say it's about 10 years. And about 10 years is code for we have no idea. Okay. Whenever someone says, oh, it's 10 years in the future, they have no idea. They're just making a number up. And the answer is we have no idea. I mean, right now, chronic views are factoring like the number 45. It's not terribly exciting yet. And tell me, from the federal government perspective, as big and as bulky as they are, I mean, is this just going to be continuously a, a threat and we're always going to hear about these breaches? What did I hear? We had the FBI got hit. We had ransomware at the Marshalls Department. We had the FAA get hit. So is this just going to be the future and trends? The federal government is just too big to be able to handle this? Or? It's not too big. It's no, they don't want to spend the money. So we can secure our systems a lot better. It costs money. And how are we going to pay for it? Right? We're going to pay for it in higher prices in our products. We're going to pay for it in higher taxes. We're going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it sooner or later, somehow. And if, as long as society doesn't want to pay, things will be insecure. Right? Do you want to pay 2x for all your stuff? Not really. But maybe it requires that for it to be secure. So with exceptions like the space shuttle or airplanes, the stuff is pretty lousy. Now, right, the Biden administration is going to try to use its buying power. So it's going to try to, using its ability to write contracts, big contracts, to increase security. We'll see how it goes. Well, I think that's definitely a step in the right direction, especially if, if you don't meet a certain standard, you're cut off from those contracts moving forward. And, and that works in a lot of other areas as well. Well, Bruce, it has been awesome talking with you today. I really enjoyed it. Uh, your your book is Hacker's Mind, and I know that it's coming out. It's already out, right? It's already out. It's in my hands. You can buy it on Amazon today. You can go to my website and you get a signed copy. So, yes, it, it's real. You can hit someone over the head with it. Not very hard, but it's here. Awesome. I recommend everybody do that. Also, you have an upcoming event. Do you usually recommend everyone hit someone over the head with my book? Mm, no, only if they like it. Only if they really like it. <laughs> okay. Let's be clear on that. And then I think you have an upcoming event at the Harvard Science Center on Friday, March 31st at 6. Yeah, so the Harvard Bookstore is doing a book event with me, and it's going to be at the Science Center. So if you're in the Boston area, come by. It's likely to be, I don't know, as fun as you can be for a book event. They're always known to be really wild and crazy. Bruce. They're totally wild and crazy. I'm, I'm not guaranteeing anything. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today and I really appreciate everything that you're doing in just pushing this field forward, being a mentor to so many people and still providing content and knowledge to the rest of us. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Bruce. Everybody, you have a good evening and don't forget to hit that like or subscribe and I will talk to everybody soon. Stay secure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure. Thank you.